G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, there is a growing train of thought that the emerging attitudes to drug taking are headed for disaster. Well, it appears that common sense approaches to drugs have been ditched in favour of what is known as, and we'll get some Uh, unpacking of some details on the idea of manipulative compassion pleas that create a new logic that leads people to believe that drug use risk is something that's manageable. Well, this new logic gives a permission to young people to take drugs. Taking drugs is a part of their normal recreational lifestyle and leads to a false sense of security about the consequences and the effects of drug taking. Well, it is always an absolute pleasure and privilege to be able to talk to Shane Varco, who's Executive Director of the Dalgano Institute. Shane's joining us today. Our talkback line will be open on 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to contribute to our conversation, we are going to talk about responding to the pro-drug propaganda that is uh, flooding our society even as we speak. But let's welcome our special guest, Shane Varco. Welcome back to 2020. Ah, Thanks, Neil. Always a pleasure to talk with you and your listeners. Thank you for having me on. Well, Shane, I'm always uh, absolutely engaged in the sorts of things you talk about. When I hear you talk about drugs and alcohol, uh, the things that I'm influenced by, which is the same things we all are, uh, what the general populace is hearing, a whole sort of pro-alcohol, pro-drug uh, propaganda regime, uh, I'm always brought back down to earth because you've got some amazing insights. Uh, Shane Varco, uh, the increasing consumption of drugs and alcohol in Australia, uh, where are we at? If, if paint a bit of a snapshot for sure. us on, on your impression of where Australia's at. Sure. Well, you're way too kind for starters, there, Neil. That's a lot of gravy for a very small potato. <laughs> um, let's let's keep that in perspective. Uh, look, uh, we just we're, we're certainly a representative group of a, a growing number of concerned Australians that uh, look at this issue um, from the familial and community base. I think one of the biggest drivers in this this whole narrative is is that the the mums and dads of and, and the community <clears throat> excuse me well being has been left out and. And there's a, there's, a, there's a title of a small group of what they call drug policy elites who continue to drive a normative message. They've been in play for 30 years, and um, and that's and that's one of the things behind it and background, which I'll get onto in a moment. But but certainly the um, I, I want to correct you just on, on the alcohol thing, which I think is um, yeah, whilst the alcohol issue is still the single biggest substance issue in our country, for the and the reason for that is it's legal, yep. <laughs> socially available, socially acceptable, easy to get. So, of course, uh, the permissibility or acceptability, accessibility and availability all increase consumption. That is a principle in play, no matter what the product. And uh, we're seeing that more and more with the permissive message that is going out to culture. But the alcohol is, industry has been given a bit of a, a bit of a shellacking in the last probably five or six years. I know we were in the forefront of that going back uh, 10, 20, 30 years when it was unpopular to be bashing alcohol. And, of course, we were seen as the wowsers 
which, by the way, means we only want social evils rectified. For those who are listening and want to know where that wowzer actually came from, that's what it yep, means. Yep. But uh, so we've been banging that drum for a long time. But yeah, the alcohol industry is getting a shellacking because uh, AMA have come out, certainly NHMRC have come out, hospital groups have come out, and they're really deeply concerned about um, you know what's going on in emergency departments and whatnot. And so there's been a real pushback. You know, we've seen reduction in advertising, increasing in taxes. Uh, tougher uh, trading hours, although that's still a, a big issue, availability and outlets. And certainly have been a, a strong push towards, you know, revisiting uh, responsible serving of alcohol, RSA, earlier closing times, and all these mechanisms. Uh, and we, of course, we've had the driver in play of the MLDA, Minimal Legal Drinking Age of 21, 21B there project. That's been in play for, for seven or eight years now, and that's been a great foil for conversations. Um, and that's on our 21B there website.org website. That's been a real conversation started nationally as well. Uh, with including one of your Queensland uh, parliamentarians and uh, surgeons, um, Anthony Lynham, is uh, who's a key member of that consortium that we've set up. So he's one of the our key speakers on that particular forum for those who want to look at that website. But that aside, alcohol's been really hit hard. So we're seeing it, and one, the reason I'm saying all this, Neil, is that we're seeing a real push by the community, a single voice. Now, this is what's happened. It happened with tobacco, and the reason I'm telling you all this and your listeners this is to give them a, a, a perspective, a backdrop of how things do change, how culture shift is initiated and how it's driven both directions, either to a positive, proactive, preventative space or to a liberalisation and permissive space. So what happened with tobacco is they went to war with tobacco and hit the uh, health bill of about, um, I think it's about $6 billion, uh, sorry, about $30 billion. And then the government said, look, enough, we, we, we can't tax our way out of this, we can't do whatever. So they set up, nationally a single voice sorry a single message a single focus and a single voice on tobacco so the, the the tobacco strategy under the national drug strategy was a single focus that meant education government policy media public forums there was a single focus single message single voice and that voice was quit quit mm. right? we talked about this a little bit last time so that worked with tobacco. We went from 75% uh, of Australian males smoking cigarettes in 1945 down to a total of about 12.8% across the board. So that's a legal drug. So we've been able to do that with that single mechanism of supply reduction and demand reduction because it's a legal drug, by the way. So we've done this with a legal, socially acceptable drug. Remarkable. Now, with alcohol, what's happening now is the same thing's happened. It's hit the, the $30 billion bar, mark of, of impact on the community, and governments have gone, well, hang on, we're not, this is not sustainable. So again, you're seeing a single voice and a single message, not as not as austere as, as the uh, tobacco one, but it's coming into play. Now you've got this strong push uh, across all mediums, government policy, uh, even advertising, the public space. There's a, there's a pushback. So we are seeing reductions in the Im impact of uh, alcohol harms and the alcohol consumption. And now about one in five Australians are actually abstinent between 16 and uh, 64. About one in five don't drink at all. That's a fascinating number you don't hear often. But the reason I say that is that you've got those two things in play. But when it comes to illicit drugs, Neil, yep. with which we arguably in Australia, if you take cannabis out of the mix, you're looking at about 4% four, four of the population, 2 to 4% of the population using. Put cannabis in between 9 and 13%, depending on which data you're, you're linking into. But when it comes to that population using illicit substances, the message is not quit or moderate or we can drive this down. It's... The message coming through, the narrative, the normative narrative coming through is this can't be stopped, this is normal behaviour, kids are going to do it, adults are going to do it, you can't stop it, let's, 
let's make it safer to use as possibly we can and let's look at decriminalising and legalising it to make it better. So that's the narrative driving in that space. This is under the same national drug strategy, by the way. So we're okay. under the same pillars here. You've got, you got tobacco, alcohol and illicit drugs. And the national drug strategy has the harm, uh, sorry, uh, demand reduction, supply reduction and harm reduction, good, all good pillars. But when it comes to illicit drugs, the one voice, one focus, one message is not away from drug use and diminishing drug use or facilitating recovery of drug use, but the other direction in the public space. Now, that's not everybody's voice. That's only a very small few. And there are genuine people out there, Neil, wonderful people who have got a heart to see, um, you know, want to save lives, absolutely, want to keep people, um, and they want to keep people off drugs, not just save lives and keep, keep people using drugs. And that's concerning. And those people, unfortunately, also get hijacked by this debate because their compassion, which is genuine, can be hijacked by these drug normalisation pro-drug activists who then fly the compassion flag. We're saving lives. And then he asked the question, well, how are you saving lives by continuing to facilitate ongoing drug use mm. and endorsing it? How well, are you saving lives by doing that? Well, Shane, this uh, sets a, uh, a bit of a, uh, a context for our conversation today. Sure. And uh, thank you so much for bringing that correction because uh, sometimes we can feel as though alcohol is continuing to rise in its consumption and in the damage that it does to society. But you've, uh, you've corrected right, me on that. And of course... It uh, does. Don't make no mistake, Neil. It does. Uh, it's, it's, uh, that's right still continuing to cause damage, but there is some uh, uh, pullback uh, on, yes. on, on alcohol. But uh, what's taking its place, and uh, you could describe this as a sort of a morphing of the way that perhaps people are looking at ways that they can uh, dull the pain, uh, that they can use as a, you know, a, a new high, a new recreation. It's moved to more recreational drug abuse. And the attitude to the recreational drug abuse is almost a positive. That's what you're saying, is it not? Is that you're saying, well, hang on, we, ha we don't have the same sort of seriousness about recreational drugs as we ought to, and yet they're killing people, and as we're often seeing at music festivals and such things, uh, that there's uh, mass overdoses oftentimes. Uh, it's killing people, but we don't have the same attitude of seriousness about it. Yeah, and that's a concern that we have because, again, the cognitive dissonance in the drug policy narrative is staggering, breathtaking. And it's amazing that logical, intelligent and certainly academic, academically minded people aren't seeing that. And, and there's two hard baskets, interesting. And, of course, they, they, they point to all sorts of other models around the world that are trying to deal with this, this rising phenomena. Of course, without going to the, to the underlying problems, of course, that's, that's another conversation that would take forever. But again, they're, they're not looking at models that do exist that have reduced uh, both legal and illegal drug use around the world, including obviously Sweden is a, is a showcase for that. Now, everyone wants to keep these pro-drug activists continue to hammer away at the Swedish model and try and find fault with it. Uh, because it has actually been incredibly successful con in considering that the Swedes were the first in the 60s to go all out in liberalising their drug policy. They were the ones who, who, who were the the pioneers, if you like, the, uh, the, uh, the proto-typical uh, drug policy experimenters. And they said, let's legalise this, let's decriminalise that, let's make this available. And they did all the things that we're being proposed now, and it was utterly disastrous. And so they reversed their policy with a lot of, a lot of battle, because once you let that off the leash, it's hard to get back on the leash. But they've seen some remarkable successes, and certainly not without its issues. No one's arguing that. But that's the model everyone wants to avoid. 
yet it's a model that, that and it's worked with tobacco. And if we didn't have the, the quit campaign in play in this country, if we didn't have the success, the remarkable success of the quit campaign, then this conversation would have a degree of redundancy because we'd be arguing in a vacuum. But we know that uh, but demand reduction, prevention, legislation and education together shift culture faster than education alone or legislation alone. And when we have the one voice, one focus and one message, that is a huge driver in culture shift because that gives the mums and dads the power to make the calls. The, the, the politicians, the media, the educators, the policymakers are all on the one page. And that's what we need to see with, with this. And not in a permissive space, not in a normalisation of drug use space, but in a demand reduction and prevention and recovery space. So perhaps our conversation will lead more to talking about uh, recreational drugs today. And, sure, of course, sure. alcohol, as you say, is still a huge issue and, uh, and we'll have other opportunities to focus on alcohol. But let's, uh, let's direct our conversation towards these recreational drugs. And as you're uh, pointing out to us very clearly, Shane, uh, that there's a different sort of a logic being applied here. There's a pro-drug propaganda which is lessening the uh, the feeling of seriousness, lessening the feeling that there will be consequences and impacts from this. When you talk about a new logic, how do you think that's being expressed? I mean, what are young people in particular hearing uh, in their culture uh, to to hear that all of these uh, recreational drugs are all fine and, uh, you know, maybe some people are getting hurt by them, but, hey, we don't want uh, you know, don't, don't to get uh, a few people dying in the way of having a good time. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think that's a good thing. First thing I want to do is just jump in and, and again, you, you've bought, uh, if you like, you've bought the narrative commentary on, on the term recreational drug use. Not your fault. A lot of people use it. I reckon that's one of the most uh, dangerous terms out there, recreational drug use. It, it sends a message that, look, oh, I'm having a good time. This is, it helps me have a good time. Um, you know, it's not an illegal psychotropic toxin. It's a recreational drug. Mm. Now, I know that's not what you mean, and that's just a common term. And we're trying to shift the narrative around drug use, and that's one of the things you do. Terms and phrases are really important, and language is really important in getting a message across. And the pro-drug lobby know how to do this very well. And that's why they use the compassion drivers. Um, and when you just put in, we're saving lives, then once that, that mantra goes out... Every other line is kind of subservient to that because ultimately that's the, the most important thing we can possibly do. But then you have to ask the logical question. So well, how are we saving lives? Are you putting lives at risk by promoting illicit psychotropic toxins as recreational drug use of an inev- inevitable um, use process? Because if you're doing that, you say we're going to save lives, but at the same time you're promoting and endorsing and enabling and equipping the ongoing use of these illicit drugs. So every time... Every episode of drug use, regardless of whether it's once a month, once a week, once a day, once a year, every episode puts a young life at risk or their health at risk. Every episode does. So when you send out a message of, look, you know, um, well, look, you're not, here's the message. It's inevitable. There's, there's your, there's your, we're saving lives is the first mantra. Second one, it's inevitable. So young people are picking up, oh, I want to be compassionate. I want to save lives. I don't want anyone to die. Of course not. No one does. Second line is it's inevitable. Oh, Okay, and in our postmodern uh, culture, and our, certainly our, our post-Christian culture, uh, where, where you know values are up for grabs and anything goes, then the benchmark, the plumb line, is removed, and so it's like, well, whatever is right for you is right for you. Whatever feels good is good, and if it's good, it feels good, if it is good, it's good. It's right. It's right. It's true. It's kind of the mantra that comes out of yeah. that postmodern 
uh, post now post truth frame. Okay, so you, you've brought a you've brought a very very important uh, correction, and uh, and I'm going to have to adjust the way that I talk about drug use, uh, because uh, as you rightly say. Uh, Shane, uh, when I've used that terminology, recreational drug use, uh, I've actually fallen into the trap of this new logic. I've fallen into the trap of the pro-drug propagandists who want to change the way that we refer to drug use. And so what you're saying is a better way for me to make reference to drug use, and when we use that term recreational drug use, a better terminology is to talk about the harms of psychotropic toxins. Yep. Okay, now describe what a psychotropic toxin actually is, because that's what we're talking about when we discuss what we tend to understand as recreational drugs. Sure. Again, um, the term is, is, is a medical term, um, and obviously it's it's a toxin. Where these are poisons. Uh, there's no uh, alcohol's a poison, of course. Uh, these are all poisons. Um, and what they do is they alter the the um, mood or uh, psychological processes uh, of the brain. And so they um, and they um, yeah, so they influence out of the normal. So it changes behaviour, changes mood. And of course, the idea of you know, any no one wants to have a bum trip. So when you know, people want the, to drink and feel. For example, when you drink alcohol, you release dopamine, and of course, that feels good. Um, and we feel good at, at the expense of our body because we're, we're artificially um, manipulating the, the the body and the brain. And of course, you pay the price after with a hangover, um, or you you know you damage your you know, other parts of your body on a, on a sort of more chronic level. You long term use, you da- you damage your body. So of course, people when they take a mood-altering uh, toxin, they they are wanting you know a buzz, and that's that's the key reason people do it. It's uh, I think uh, what's his name, the cartoonist Knight, in the, in, the, in the, one of the publications about a week or so ago had a cartoon of um, you know, and he's saying this person you know, being attended to by ambulance drivers in a bit of a mess, and he said uh, this isn't drug use, this is mood-enhancing experience. And I thought, he's spot on. I said, exactly. So the idea was just selling, oh, we're, we're going to enhance your mood so you can enjoy the experience more, which arguably you're not enjoying the experience. You're just enjoying what, reportedly, what this substance is doing to manipulate your brain process. So anyway, there's not, not just the brain. You've got, you know, adrenal glands and you've got, you know, all sorts of things going on here. So without getting into the complexities of it. So what happens is, you know, you, you, the risks of the use of a psychotropic toxin Yes, you might get high. In fact, one of the things that's fascinating about uh, taking um, particularly some of the new novel, what they call NPSs, novel psychoactive substances, which is uh, not technically illicit, plastic illicit drugs like your your narcotics, your opioids, your stimulants. These are these are stimulants, but they're um, but they're uh, they're sort of made in a lab by altering just some of the components of you know cannabis, just synthetically devised in, in labs, and they're incredibly dangerous. Uh, in their own right, normal illicit drugs, for example, like cocaine and cannabis and um, uh, heroin and opioids can be dangerous and are dangerous, but these things can be even more so because of the way they're, they're manipulated in the, in the chemistry. But, for example, you go to a, a, these young people go to, or young adults, let's make that clear, we're not talking about children here, we're talking about fully functioning, vote-carrying, uh, you know, adults, fully-fledged, supposedly adults, who are deliberately seeking out these drugs, Buying them fully aware, self-aware of their own their own body, aware of the substances they're buying, and they're going out and using them in a public venue, which is quite staggering. So this is a wanton and deliberate and planned and strategic process. This is not just an accident or, or driven by the tyranny of addiction. This is actually 
a planned exercise in self-harm, really. And so um, what happens is they go to, that, they go to that, buy a tablet and someone, there might be, I can tell you right now, there won't be one person who's used one tablet. There'll be at least 20 or 30 people who've used the same batch. Now, of that 20 or 30 people, because of the, the chemistry that's in it, um, you'll have, you know, maybe, again, I'm speculating here, maybe three or four people will have a, you know, a really heightened experience, have a great time, the dopamine works well, uh, the uh, serotonin kicks off, you know, the adrenaline goes in, they have a great time, it's fantastic. They crash later on, of course, you always come down and you have the next couple of days you feel like rubbish, but they had a great six or seven hours of fun, that was fantastic and that was awesome. I can manage that they come down later, that's their agenda. But in that same group, you'll have another two or three people who got incredibly sick and needed ambulance attendance for reasons we can't quite figure out because their biochemistry is a little bit different. You have someone who dies, tragically dies as a result of using that substance because, again, their biochemistry, their genetic predisposition is different. And that's why pill testing is such a dangerous option because when you test a pill, you're saying to a person who's bringing an illegal drug to a venue, oh, yeah, this, this pill is what you think it is. It's MDMA, not no other mix. Oh, great, MDMA. I'll take the pill. They die because their body regardless of the substance, didn't react well to this or they had an incredibly bad experience. So again, any mechanism that's put in play that enables or equips or empowers or endorses an episode of taking an illicit psychotropic toxin that puts the young person's life at risk of harm or death is bad policy. And anyone who tries to dance around that with a new narrative, a new language is really playing some disturbing games with young people's lives. And I think that's, that's a message that, uh, of course, unfortunately, kids in high school are getting the prevention message, but then they're told with these other messages, look, you're going to do it, you know, you can't help it. Once you're 18, then, you know, go out, get the pill, you know, check it out, go and have a good time, you know, don't make a habit of it, you know, you know. So that message is getting through. And, of course, people say, look, a friend, usually a friend says, look, I'm OK. Yeah, of course, you have a downer, but that's OK, you can manage that. So then that narrative starts to buy into, sorry, that public narrative about, you know, we want to help you do it safer, says to the already permission-driven subculture that, okay, if I can do this, worst-case scenario is someone's going to come and help me if I get in trouble. And, of course, no one's not going to help someone in a drug crisis. But what you're actually saying is have at it, the public purse will cover your back. That's, that's a message that's being sent through. And the average taxpayer and certainly mum and dad are going, that's outrageous. We don't, want our kid, we don't want our kids taking drugs. We certainly don't want a mechanism in the public place that says we're going to enable this. We need to, we need to reverse this thinking. And, of course, when someone dies and it's the most horrendous experience for a parent to lose a child, then all those emotions flick in. And it's like we just want to do anything to stop a death. But then every time we do that and that, that decision to stop that death leads to a permissive drug culture, culture, we're adding to the momentum for that. But not everyone who loses a child to a drug overdose goes to that space. In fact, more go to the prevention, demand reduction and recovery space. But they're not talked about. They're not the ones that are put in front of the media often. They're the ones that are uh, ignored or lambasted by the pro-drug lobby. And it's the ones who want, who are talk, convinced by the pro-drug lobby, oh, look, the only answer to this problem is to legalise drugs or make it safer by taking drugs or, you know, having pill testing or having, you know, um, injecting rooms or whatever it is. We, we just need to have those in place. Oh, OK. When that bereaved, bereaved, incredibly sad, shockingly um, in grief person hears that, they just go, yeah, OK, I want to help. Yep. 
And of course, they say, and then they say, oh, look, we've got you know another life. We could have been saved if we had this. And see, this is really disturbing. You know, and in genuine harm reduction, people who do care deeply about the lives of drug users who want them to exit drug use are often roped into these pro-drug agendas by a very small but very vocal um, propagandist group. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Certainly good to have you along with us on 2020. We're talking about responding to a pro-drug propaganda. Uh, Shane Varco, our guest. Shane is the Executive Director of Dalgano Institute. Uh, we are going to be taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Uh, Shane, though, uh, just a few minutes out from the news. In fact, uh, we'll pick up on some important issues beyond the news, but let's take a call. Uh, Rosemary is in Melbourne, and we'll just take that call first. Hello, Rosemary. Welcome along. Hi, Neil. Good morning. Nice to hear from you, Rosemary. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Uh, as an older person, I'm thinking back a few years. Um, I'm thinking um, there's many, many stories for many years, and even today, Neil, of unknown and known of people who were badly on alcohol and drugs, and the Lord has appeared to them, even if they were dying and cases that where they were instantly set free, knowing they were dying, and they lived to thank the Lord and to share it with others. Uh, one particular case in America, Helen Baylor. Um, she got to the stage where she was even tr- distributing drugs to others, and she knew she was dying one day, and instantly she cried out to Jesus, and instantly he set her free. Uh, Rosemary, a good thought in there, and uh, response only a couple of minutes out to the news, uh, but you, your response, Shane, uh, people who are going through all sorts of challenges, so sometimes there are sure. some supernatural things happen that uh, that make their uh, attitudes and their lives right. Uh, just your quick response. Yeah, look, just quickly, yes, certainly. Uh, our biggest secular organisation, well, we, we work with both uh, religious and non-religious uh, groups all the time, and we certainly hear those narratives pop up from time to time, especially in the recovery space. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, they, they have that, what they call a theophany or an epiphany, and often it's Jesus that, that appears to them, or they, they believe it's Jesus that appears to them. And there's a miraculous intervention. And yeah, we've seen that, and, and we've seen even, um, particularly with dealing with some of the religious ones, and particularly the Christian religion um, groups, their process on biblical, um, their biblical focus is remarkable at seeing um, changes in attitudes, and also the spiritual side, that supernatural intervention. I've, I've uh, talked with uh, many, many uh, participants in that space who have expressed the very same things Rosalie just talked about. So, yeah, have no problem. That's, that is a key driver and necessary, more necessary, I think, than most imagine. But unfortunately, that's not always the path that people take because that is a religious path that many people, uh, for, for reasons of their own choosing, don't want to go down. Uh, Rosemary from Melbourne, thank you so much for your insight today and we'll continue taking calls after the news. Our special guest is Shane Varco, Executive Director of Dalgano Institute. There are some fabulous resources on the website at dalganoinstitute.org.au. I'd encourage you to visit that website. We are talking about responding to pro-drug propaganda. And the idea that there is a new logic that's being employed when it comes to discussion about what I was calling recreational drugs. Now I'm going to call them psychotropic toxins. We'll continue our conversation after the news. Before we continue this conversation, let's take some calls. There's been some patient callers who've been waiting on the line. Wendy is in New South Wales. Hello, Wendy. Welcome along. Oh, hi, Shane. How are you going? I'm well, Wendy. How are you? 
Uh, yeah, look, um, I'm a Christian, born-again Christian. Yeah, yeah. And uh, two weeks ago, a man uh, in six, about 68 years of age tried to sell me illegal drugs in the little town I live in yeah. on the New England Highway. And, um, and I found out that what you've been talking about today, there's, there's at least 50 people here that think that, that this is okay. Yeah, yeah. To be taking this stuff, all sorts of things, all sorts of people delivering all over the place. It's nearly in every street in my little town. Yeah. And as a Christian, I'm a bit sad that yeah. um, people are self-destructing. Wendy, I hear that, and I think the rural issue is a lot, a lot higher. And what's happening, the, the, the phenomena you're experiencing is quite common, particularly in smaller rural areas, uh, because it is, the, the message has got through, worst-case scenario, get a slap on the wrist, a wrist. there's money to be made, um, uh, and certainly dealers, there's a lot heavier uh, punitive responses to dealers. But our concern is that the narrative's gone to this kind of, we're trying to reduce supply, and reduced supply isn't working. And that's, that's the, again, the, the, the comments coming out of the public, the pro-drug space. Oh, it's not working. And in some respects, it isn't working because supply is there and you're, you're experiencing that. Because that's, so that's another way of saying, oh, well, um, and the reason why supply reduction isn't working is because the message is coming through that we're not going to reduce supply. Demand is going to grow. This is normal. And so all those messages keep adding to this growing narrative that says, oh, I'll give it a go. And, of course, every time someone engages in drug dealing and they don't get caught, then they think that's okay. Now, unfortunately, the police don't deal with the, the, the penny, and, uh, uh, penny and dime dealers. They want to deal up the, tra up the train a bit, particularly with the, with the uh, manufacturers. So, yeah, you're right. It's really sad. And I think as a, as a, as a religious person, as a, as a spiritual person, certainly, uh, as I understand it, you can pray into that space uh, and... Um, and you know, really, really uh, be be a uh, someone in the, in that community that makes a difference, stands up. When it comes to someone dealing to you, I'd certainly be informing the police about that. They may not act on it straight away, but they will begin to monitor that person. Um, I know in my neighbourhood, there's a park next door to me where well, I've confronted some of the uh, meth dealers myself personally, and had a chat to them, and uh, they don't deal there anymore. So. <laughs> It's interesting. Okay. Wendy from New South Wales, thank you so much for your call and uh, just reflecting too that uh, Wendy's experience in her country town in New South Wales, you mentioned uh, there along the New England Highway, uh, that'd be the same sort of experience that most people in country towns uh, in uh, western New South Wales or whether it be western central Queensland or uh, in uh, country Victoria, uh, so many towns would be dealing with the same sorts of issues. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Uh, you're invited to uh, be a part of our conversation today. Let's take a call from Wayne in Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Wayne. Welcome along. Yeah, how are you, mate? Good. Very well, Wayne. What are your Good thoughts on our conversation? Mate, I, um, I've been clean for 25 years now. And Brilliant. back in my days, all the stuff that's around today, this ice and that, that wasn't around then, and it was bad enough then without it being the way it is now. But yep. the only way that I beat it is through someone telling me about the Lord, and, and I was in such a mess. I, it was either losing my family, keeping my bad habits up, or even death, because there was yeah. times when I was in hospital for a period of time. Yeah. I think the worst drug I'd done back then was heroin. Yep. And, and compared to the, the, the drugs that are around today, it's like taking an aspirin. It sounds crazy, but 
these other drugs are so dangerous, but there's too many people, and I was one of them, that treated marijuana alone as a soft drug. Yep. Listed, I know, down the track, it was a stepping stone to the, the addiction that that took over my life because oh. here I was thinking that I was in control, yep. but it started controlling me. Wayne, amazing thoughts and a great testimony too, but uh, your thoughts on in response to, oh. uh, to Wayne... Absolutely, Wayne, and thank you for your call here, mate, and it's great to to talk to uh, recovery, recovering and recovered addicts. I mean, I deal with a lot of this, in fact, a lot of people in this space, um, because we certainly do a lot of work in referring to recovery modes, and that's one of the, the, the narrative that it should be going to, is demand reduction and, and recovery should be our our public discourse, not, not drug use enabling. Um, but but with Wayne's story, uh, certainly he's, again, that spiritual account, it's a great deal, but I noticed a couple of comments there. You get to the end of your rope, and um, and it's, drugs will take you there. Uh, and people say every person that uses a drug doesn't become a drug addict. That's true, no argument. But every drug use, every event, every episode of drug use is another step towards addiction. And the cannabis comment is absolutely spot on. It's touted as the uh, the, the harmless drug, and of course it's it's got medicinal capacity. So surely it can't be all bad. Again, that's now informing the the drug policy narrative as well. Oh, it can't be that bad. What's interesting though is in Australia right now, right now, we have over two hundred twenty thousand cannabis registered cannabis addicts that that are actually seeking treatment for cannabis alone, and that's that's not meth, amphetamine, heroin, or the opioids. That's just cannabis. Now that's fascinating. And so, and, and of course, now we know that cannabis and alcohol use is common. Cannabis and, and uh, stimulant use is common. So this is this is a, as Wayne has just beautifully articulated. This is uh, it's not just a gateway drug. It is uh, a key mix, a drug in the mix that creates all sorts of drama. So yeah, we we like to work with the recovering community more because we know there are more people that are out of drug use um, than are actually actively involved, I'm not talking about the occasional users, but people are in the addictive space. There are more out of it than are in it, yet we're not hearing from them. We're only hearing from the current users and their supporters who want to have, who set up user groups and all sorts of things to keep drug use going for these people rather than helping them get off. So I find that uh, great. Thanks, Wayne, for your input. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Wayne in Mackay. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-316-316. Let's continue to take calls. Shelby is in Sunnybank in Queensland. Hello, Shelby. Welcome along. Yeah, Neil, um, Shane, how you going? i just got to get away from the radio. Oh, well. Um, yeah, well, Shelby. Um, mate, um, I'm just amazed. Um, the question that I have is, is there any um, introduction of um, teaching people uh, anti-drug habits in schools, let alone primary, um, and, um, um, you know, high schools? I'll just say one thing. Um, at age 15, um, I was tempted into cigarettes. I smoked a half a pack of the cigarettes and chucked it. I had enough sense at 15 to say, forget that. That doesn't do me any good. Uh, it, just, uh, you know, it was just making short breath, just having a couple of drawers of the darn thing at the time. Um, yep. And then the same thing, I've never done anything bigger than aspirin. Uh, I've had my brother and 30-odd people at one time at a party all trying to coax me. And um, I just wouldn't do it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of peer pressure. I know that's there today. Um, it's not quite as bad as it was when I was a teenager. Um, I'm 69. And the thing is, um, today I just think I can't understand the mentality of so many people. You see all these footballers, they've got all the money under the world, 
and then they go and do this thing and lose their career. Shelby, yeah. lots in what you're saying, but let's come back to your initial question about education in yeah. schools. Uh, your thoughts, Shane? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, Shelby's spot on. Demand reduction remains one of the, the, the key pillar of that, the national drug strategy that's been not long neglected. And because the pro-drug activists always say education doesn't work or education does work but not legislation with it. You need both. And so we actually, our forte as an institute, we are an education, alcohol and other drug education institute. That's our forte. We do some advocacy, obviously, work and policy advisement and referral. But we are, you know, 80% of our work is in the education space. We have a complete suite of curriculum. And going into schools, not just doing an incursion, and doing a one-off seminar for 90 minutes, although they do have impact and we have the, the stats and the data to, to verify that. We do. Uh, we're very thorough in our follow-up. Kids are impacted. In fact, we've had stories, numerous stories of kids deciding not to use drugs because of the seminar. Kids um, that were using drugs confessing up and wanting to get help. Drug dealers coming out after seminars, you know, in schools saying, you know, near 10 kids that are dealing in the school saying, I'm the dealer, I need to stop this. Um, but that, those alone are not enough. We have a complete education curriculum. But it has to be the parents. We have parent night, we have sporting club curriculum, we have community forums, we do the whole gamut. But those and that demand reduction has to be a voice that's matched by legislation, government, media and policies. That's what I'm saying, that one voice, one message and one focus. Because if we're going into school saying, hey, guys, and we talk about not doing drugs, not just saying, oh, don't do drugs, drugs are bad, which is what the pro-drug lobby love to tell us. Uh, we talk about what's going on with drugs, the how of drugs, the why of drug use. What are the drivers? And certainly peer pressure is the single biggest driver of drug use, uh, along with curiosity. And again, they're both linked to a, another dynamic in the community we talk about now, Humpty Dumpty Dilemma Seminar, which is talking about worldview and what's going on with young people. And again, buying into that commentary about with sporting stars, again, you've got disposable income, you've got entitlement, you've got um, a value system that tells you you can do whatever you want and then an, another value system on top of that that's being informed by the pro-drug propaganda that you can actually get away with this if you're clever. So you've got the means, you've got the permission, and so you, and then you've got the, the sense of, I'm entitled, what do you do? You have a go. And they, and they do put their lives at risk and they put their careers at risk thinking they can get away with it. And they tried to resurrect poor old Ben Cousins. They were wheeling him out many, many times to try and sell his uh, case. But the bottom line was he never actually got accountable for his drug use. And that's why he needed to go into rehab. He needed to be in, in, in facilitated rehab and given that chance to do full recovery. And that's the things that were, are not happening at the moment. So people are given half-baked options. They have a detox for a week, and it's not enough. There needs to be a recalibration of the person. So, look, yeah, peer pressure is there, but we need to have a, a, a push in a lot of different areas to see the culture shift. As we've done with tobacco, we can do this with illicit drugs. Well, it illustrates just how big the issue is. Thank you so much to Shelby from Sunnybank. Let's take another quick call. Jonathan is in Perth in WA. Hello, Jonathan. Yes. Jonathan, what are yeah, your thoughts? The, 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 yeah, the problem is that, you see, my people lack of knowledge. They, 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 my people are destroyed because of, of lack of knowledge. Not just lack of knowledge, but they reject knowledge. So what we are all saying here is that uh, we say lot of things, say all things are permissible, but all things are not beneficiary. We have all things going on in the country, all over the world. We say that, but there's nobody to defend what we are saying. Because we, we say what we want to be said, but we do the same thing that we say we don't want. So if there's no power to stop this thing coming in the country, 
and the same thing so that when they caught where are these drugs going when they are caught by the police we don't give account so telling the young people not to use it is not a thing but if we ourselves be proud ourselves not use it then then our children not use it but we turn it around you in front of your children using them they are not allowed to use it Jonathan, good thoughts in what you're sharing there and uh, some biblical quotes in there about lack of knowledge and people perishing and the idea that perhaps uh, people who are of faith in Christ uh, perhaps need to rise up and get knowledge uh, when it comes to this because it is a major social issue. Uh, your thoughts on on any of the aspects that uh, you were able to pick up, uh, Shane, from Jonathan? Certainly, Jonathan. Look, yeah, a, lot, a lot of data there. I hear that, and uh, again, from a, from your religious perspective, I can see the value in what you're saying, and of course, it makes a lot of sense from a from a secular perspective. Um, I think the principles still apply, and if uh, religious people have uh, have got to be, as I understand from you know from my engagement in that space consistently uh, with different groups, because again, we do a lot of work with religious groups, particularly uh, Christian groups, uh, because they're the ones historically uh, in this country and, and still predominantly are the ones who work in their welfare recovery and well-being space because they have a, a narrative that says that the whole human being is, is um, redeemable, the whole human being is important and we want them to know best practice, best health and best outcomes and certainly substances don't aid in the bet best health or best practice. So but when Christians buy into or religious people buy into the compassion narrative only um, and they just say, oh, we'll just help people stay alive and hopefully they'll they'll be fine in the end uh, and that's important don't get me wrong that is absolutely vital that, that uh, religious people do that and christians specifically do that but it's also vital that they engage in, in understanding that with the knowledge that jonathan said what is going on what is best practice how can i help this person become complete and whole and what do they need to, be, to do to involve with that and being nice um, is is part of the equation, but if that's all you do, then in the end we're not going to see a change. We're going to see just a, a, again that permission narrative grow because people aren't able to say, "Well, I'm willing to come alongside to be a different model, to be a different example, and to help this person make best choices for best practice outcomes." Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson: A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Our special guest this hour, Shane Varco, Executive Director of Dalgano Institute. There is a website, dalganoinstitute.org.au, to pursue some more detail about some of the things we're talking about today. Uh, let's very quickly take another call or two, but we'll need to be very quick. Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. Uh, good day, Neil. Good day, Shane. Yeah, uh, hey, just Chris. two things. Um, like, they um, always uh, cause rousers, but they always have campaigns, but always with the second, third, or fourth option. And also, uh, you know, how nowadays, like, if you smoke or you drink, they put you uh, no priority on transplant lists. So why at these rave parties, when you said, especially, these are willful acts by these people, that we send 21 ambulances. I mean, if you're going to do this, then you shouldn't expect ambulances. Ambulances should be for genuine emergencies. So... This is what I think, you know, people should be told that if they're going to take drugs and if anything happens, well, it's on their head, you know. Uh, Shane, your thoughts, because I know this is a central uh, uh, tenet of how you respond, and uh, it's not always in the picking up pieces in people's lives when uh, when there is uh, the falling apart. Your thoughts, Shane? Of course. Lord, the, the more you tear down, using a metaphor here, and I appreciate the call, and it's always a difficult one. No one wants people to, to die. No one wants people to be in harm's way. People want to be responded to. In fact, the ambulance drivers, ambulance and, and medicos do a remarkable and sacrificial job. 
and the taxpayers pay for that. So we're going to say, well, you know, and, and I hear the sentiment of your caller, and I, you know, I, I totally get that. It's logically he's making complete sense. And uh, but to, to not to, to go to the uh, aid and abet those who are ill is also a problem. But there's your there's your dichotomy, and he's exactly right. Now you've got people that are, um, you know, self-harming, deliberately self-harming, willfully self-harming, taking up the, the hospital budgets, where other people um, that are, you know, not doing those activities, not deliberately involved in those self-harming activities, just for a buzz, are having to miss out on treatment or have it delayed because of these behaviours. That's concerning, and that, and that kind of it has to be addressed. And I think once we, as long as we continue, Neil, to break down the fences in our culture. All we're going to do is keep racking up the ambulances at the bottom, but unfortunately, that's a black hole. That's a black hole, and that's what we need to redivert focus of funding away from just damage management and just a growing pit, uh, empty pit, and we keep digging a hole towards demand reduction, prevention, and recovery. That's where we need to be focusing, as they've done in Sweden, as they've done in other areas, and any country that engages in this mechanism sees fruit when it's sustained and focused. But if we just dabble in it and say, oh, we tried the demand reduction, it didn't work, let's go back to the ambulances, of course it's going to fail. This has to be a sustained strategy in the one direction for a long period of time. In fact, interestingly, interestingly enough, the Howard era on tough on drugs, um, uh, up into 2007 or whatnot, we saw a, a significant decrease in drug use and, and the whole campaign towards that. And that was not a zero tolerance uh, campaign at all. In fact, even a, a, a prominent drug, um, you know, harm reductionist people uh, have said that well, that was a good campaign as well. So, you know, there is, and that was a focus on on demand reduction and on uh, prevention and on recovery. So we need to go back to that, but that, of course, governments change, and then we go back to a more liberal policy, and away it goes again. And so, again, I hear the sentiment, we want to save people's lives, but we save them better by stopping them taking the first use in the first place. That's a key driver. And if there's money for the uh, picking up the pieces, uh, there needs to be perhaps even extra money for the prevention strategies. And uh, absolutely, look, no, look, Neil, couldn't say more. No, I'm not saying we don't get any money from the government. I can tell you that right now, we get nothing. Our, our campaign, our programs have been quite successful, and even um, from an evidence-based review, have been successful. Uh, but we don't get any money from government because we we are working specifically in demand reduction. Uh, space. We believe in and support the harm minimisation national drug strategy. Never, never not support that. But we believe demand reduction is important. So we're, we're looking at working that. We work across the, with different groups as well across the country. And of course, I'd like to say there are a number of groups out there doing fabulous work. Drug Free Australia is a long-standing great organisation. Drug Advisory Council of Australia is another group, a peak body that looks after lots of different drug organisations. The Anti-Ice Campaign in Queensland is a good group. Um, Tony Wood and, and Tony Huang in, in Sydney, they do great work. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, IDEA, uh, which is another it's a New South Wales-based um, prevention and demand reduction drug group. These groups all do great work, but they're little funded. It's, uh, it's Unfortunately, the, the funding mostly goes to either supply reduction or the harm reduction models which just end up reinforcing the inevitability of drug use. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to Chris from Victoria and I'll have to apologise to those listeners who didn't get a chance to have a question or have your say today. Uh, we won't be able to take any more calls. In fact, we've run out of time and uh, I want to thank Shane Varco, who's Executive Director of the Dalgano Institute and, and uh, just once more mention the website uh, because there are some great resources that you can access and even get onto uh, Shane's regular email mailing of uh, some amazing 
uh, insights into what's going on in Australia today, dalganoinstitute.org.au. Shane, thanks so much for taking some time. And uh, we'll, we'll, there's so many dimensions to cover. We'll set up another opportunity in the near future and we'll, we'll get this sort of conversation underway again. Thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. My pleasure, Neil. Thank you for the opportunity and to your viewers and listeners as well. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au